Cancer stresses out the body in numerous ways, um, including we don't have enough people understanding why, why fund science? Why do we really care about it? So I think this is the first place I might be publicly saying that, but. Welcome to the 16th episode of Apple Finch Pudding, your gateway into the world of science. Today's scientist is Chloe Kirk, a PhD candidate in biochemistry at the University of Miami. Welcome, Chloe. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Let's uh, dive into your research now. So what is your research? So biochemistry is very broad. Uh, can you nar narrow it down a bit? Like, But still, you can stay general. But what is the field you're working in? Yeah, you're right. Biochemistry is very massive. Everyone in my program works on very different things. Um, so my the lab I'm in is actually more of a cancer biology lab. Um, so my boss is a cancer biologist by training. Um, but he discovered these really cool things. So he was studying the switch in tumor cell dormancy. And he saw that when cancer cells stop actively dividing, that these things in the center of the cell, the nucleolus, uh, formed called amyloid bodies. And why he coined them that is because he saw that the nucleolus reconfigured into this fibrillar structure um, consistent with other amyloids. And you've probably heard the word amyloids before, but not in the context of cancer. You've probably heard of them, if anything, in say neurological disorders or um, like Alzheimer's disease with beta amyloid or Parkinson's disease with alpha-synuclein. Um, so those are pathological amyloids. Um, but this amyloid that my boss discovered, amyloid bodies, is called a physiological amyloid. So it seems to be beneficial for the cell and it kind of um, promotes cellular dormancy. It stops the cell from actively dividing. And then when these amyloid bodies disassemble, so when they go away, uh, we see that the cell starts to divide rapidly again. And so my project, when I came to the lab, was to understand how do these amyloid bodies, these physiological amyloids, disassemble? Uh, what proteins are involved, what mechanism is? Um, and that work, um, maybe unsurprisingly or surprisingly, led me into this path of talking about pathological amyloids as well. So most recently, I've been translating this physiological amyloid disassembly mechanism um, into what could work for a pathological amyloid. Before we go into the world of amyloids, yes. um, w w when do they occur? Is it like during stress or something? Great question. I skipped right over that. Yes. So the amyloid bodies we see appear during stimuli or stress. So how my boss found them in tumor cell dormancy was during um, acidosis. So you've got the, the low oxygen, the low pH, stressing out the cells, causing these amyloid bodies to appear. And that is one of the stresses we work from in the lab. But honestly, it's just a lot easier to heat shock ourselves because we see amyloid bodies also appear when we heat shock them and it takes a lot less time. So most of my work, I just do with heat shock as a stimuli. And in a natural organism, like in human beings, what causes a, a cell to, to get stressed? Great question. So. Pretty much when you're talking about physiological stress, um, the one that we go back to really is acidosis, low pH. Um, though there are quite a few papers, um, I, I don't know how much I should relate this necessarily to my work, but there's a lot of work done with um, like heat shocking humans, I guess, and you then you see like a regulatory response and it's supposed to really help with certain um, like prevention of, I think like heart attacks and things like that. Um, And I think they did these things where they, they had humans just, you know, go into saunas for, say, 20 minutes every day and they measured different protein levels of what was going on in their bodies. And they saw elevated um, certain groups of proteins in the, the uh, participants that were going into the saunas regularly. Uh, but I say probably the most 
normal physiological one we're talking about would be hypoxia or acidosis of humans. So this stress or cells that are stressed, that's actually linked to diseases, also like cancer and stuff. Exactly. The most the most common one, the one that we talk about is cancer. Um, cancer stresses out the body in numerous ways, um, including creating that low oxygen, low pH environment, which is called the tumor microenvironment. Now, I guess we'll dive into the amyloids. Is there a way you can explain clearly what amyloids really are? So that there's something in the close to the nucleus, you said? or So the amyloids I'm studying are different from what most people would consider amyloids. And I can't actually call them amyloids. We want to officially call them amyloid-like assemblies because while they share all the same characteristics of what I've been talking about, pathological amyloids, um, they're still slightly different in the fact that they're in our cells, you know, rather than being extracellular. Um, they have a ton of different proteins made up of them rather than, say, beta amyloid plaques are just one protein like beta amyloid. Um, and again, they're, they're physiological. They seem to be beneficial for our cells. Um, so we see these amyloid bodies appear during stimuli like um, acidosis or uh, heat shock um, in what, the nucleus of the cell. So you've got the cytoplasm, you've got the nucleus, and the right in the center, you've got the nucleolus. And um, when the stimuli happens, um, proteins from all around the cell, uh, we've found over 150 different proteins, all come to the nucleolus and convert into these, they move into these fibril structures, really. I mean, you can see that with electron microscopy, it looks really cool. Um, and the nucleolus, um, unless there's, there's certain proteins that will go inside of the amyloid body and the rest just kind of get pushed out, get pushed away from it. So actually when you use certain markers of the nucleolus, you can see between the fibrils of the, the amyloid body, um, in the pockets of the fibrils, um, you see some of the nucleolar uh, proteins kind of being squeezed in there. Um, so it's a separate structure from the nucleolus, which is really cool. So if I understand it correctly, when, when the cell is stressed, the amyloids or amyloid-like bodies get formed, the nucleus yep. goes into the amyloids and other proteins go out or something. So yeah, pr pretty much the how the term we like to phrase it is the nucleolus reconfigures. Um, so we have the amyloid body form where the nucleolus is and the nucleolus yeah, kind of gets pushed out um, it's not like the nucleolus makes any other structure somewhere else. It's just the main structure in the nucleolus is the amyloid body. And all the other proteins that can't fit into the amyloid body um, from the nucleolus are kind of squeezed either inside different pockets or around it. So the amyloid-like body is in the nucleolus? Yes, yes. Okay, okay. It's really in there. And then some structures get in there and it's like a bag of protection that's in there yes. when the cell is stressed. That's what we like to think of it as, um, because we see proteins from the DNA synthesis, translation, transcription. When they originally did mass spec, I think it was in 2016, they're expecting to see like a specific subset, say just DNA synthesis participants sequestered in the amyloid body, which would explain why the cell isn't able to actively uh, divide or grow. Uh, but they were pretty surprised when they saw that it, everything under the sun, there wasn't a specific group of proteins that seemed to be sequestered in there. Uh, which is really interesting. And they later found that it's the specific, uh, we might be going too into the weeds here, there's a specific motif of every protein that localizes the amyloid body. And that's what we see uh, is the regulator of, uh, it's both, I guess, required and sufficient is the correct terminology to form these amyloid bodies. Are there then trackers or something that determine which proteins actually get in the amyloid-like bodies and which don't? Or it's yeah, so that's that. It's called the amyloid converting motif, or ACM for short. 
the amyloid converting motif is both has a fibrillation propensity domain, so pretty much a domain that likes to form amyloids, and then it has arginine and lysine-rich residues, which just mean it's extremely positively charged. And so these get attracted to, in the amyloid body, what we see are these ribosomal intergenic space RNA, or um, RIGS RNA. And these are really long, low-complex, negative RNA strands. And so they're really negative and they attract really positive pieces of protein, right? So pretty much you've just got these electrostatic interactions. Negative RNA is attracting positive proteins to come to the nucleolus. And then this RIGS RNA that is only made during the stimuli. So as soon as, say, we put the cells in heat shock, the uh, the cell, the uh, nucleolus, starts making this ribosomal intergenic spacer RNA. The negative charge superbuilds up, attracts all these positive proteins with the ACM, and then we there's a postdoc in the lab studying the exact interaction, but uh, for short, electrostatic interactions occur and uh, make these amyloid bodies form. That's yeah. quite complicated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry, we can okay. cut it out if you need. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Um, so, and the amyloid-like bodies itself are proteins, right? Yes. And our previous episode, we talked about uh, fluorescent proteins or molecules. How do they differ? Like, well, how do you see different types of proteins? This is something totally different. I understand that, but we all call them proteins. So they're based on amino acids. Why are they different than other types of proteins? The proteins that I'm working with? Yeah. Well, that was the interesting thing, I think, is we thought they would be, say, there'd be an unusual characteristic of them other than having that amyloid converting motif domain. But there really doesn't seem to be. Um, it seems to capture a ton of different proteins. And honestly, that'll probably be future work down the line is um, maybe why there's always different proteins under the sun. Um, but the... My boss only coined the term amyloid bodies, so we've only been working on this for maybe a bit over a decade. Um, so it's still relatively new structure or organelle in the field that we need to study. Um, but yeah, I don't really have a good answer to that question because we we don't we're seeing so many different types of proteins in there. Then maybe I'll go back to the the amyloids. They're linked to um, cancer and uh, neurodegenerative diseases. How does that link work, actually? Yeah. So. Um, as I mentioned with the cancer part is we see these amyloid bodies appear during stress. So the stress that we're talking about when we talk about cancer is the tumor microenvironment forming uh, with the, the low oxygen, the low pH uh, induces the uh, is a stressor to make that RIGS RNA I mentioned to form the amyloid bodies. Um, but then you've got the other side of the picture, these neurodegenerative diseases, uh, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Huntington's, and all of these are formed or all of these diseases happen because of amyloids. Um, and these would be pathological amyloids, and typically they're thought of as an accumulation of one specific protein in bulk, um, whether that's beta amyloid, uh, alpha-synuclein, Huntington's. And uh, what the theory is right now is, um, how do we get rid of those plaques once they're formed? Um, and a lot of work's going into that, as, you know, there's a lot of drugs coming out about Alzheimer's specifically. Um, and what I'm looking at is, can we use what the physiological amyloid-like assemblies that I'm studying, um, amyloid bodies, because we know that these disassemble in cells and they've got that same amyloid structure. Um, so in theory, the same protein and mechanism that's working for those should also work for pathological amyloids. Um, and so that's what I'm testing right now. 
but they are separate mechanisms. The physiological amyloids I'm studying don't have anything directly to do with any of those neurodegenerative diseases. It's not causing you know, anything like that. Um, but I'm hoping that the same proteins that are fixing those amyloids could fix those pathological amyloids. So the pathological amyloids actually result in an accumulation of proteins that are form plaques and that results in a disease like Alzheimer's and that makes cells die actually in your brain. You see amyloid-like bodies in other cells and they assemble and disassemble. I want to try to adapt that or use that disassembling to work on the um, other amyloid bodies. Exactly. The amyloid bodies that we see in, for example, I work with our breast cancer cells. So the amyloid bodies we see right in the center of those, um, and I've been working, that's my PhD work, is to figure out the mechanism of disassembly there, um, to try those same exact proteins and mechanism in pathological amyloids. So we have that whole system of amyloid-like bodies and amyloids. Does the immune system actually get triggered by, by some of these structures or not really? That's a great question. Um, I don't work that much with immunology. Um, to the best of my knowledge, I don't believe so, solely because going back to these um, amyloid bodies are response by the cells in states of stress, so the, the cells want them. Um, but yeah, I don't have a great answer to that question. Because you're actually trying to adapt that disassembly of amyloid bodies. So you're actually working to a cancer treatment? Yeah. Well, sorry, I shouldn't say yes, a cancer treatment. I'm, um, ideally, someday, long term, that's what it could go into. But because my stuff is quite uh, basic biology at the moment, I'm just working in cell culture. Um, I think long term, we're actually considering this for a minute before I was said, I don't want to spend another three years at the lab, is trying it out the mechanism I found in uh, mice, um, because we can also induce amyloid bodies in mice. Um, same thing if we, we have cancer cells grow in mice and then um, um, and then see if we can disassemble those same amyloid bodies in, in, a, in an amyloid in vivo. But yeah, I didn't want to spend another few years in lab. So I think someone else will have to do that. Um, maybe the next graduate student project. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you're actually leaving academia then? Uh, yes. So I think this is the first place I might be publicly saying that, but um, I love research. I, I mean, that's the reason I'm in grad school, honestly. Um, in undergrad, I was doing going from one research lab to another. Couldn't get enough of it. And still the same. I, I still love doing research every day. Um, but I think what excites me the most is not only doing research, but also learning about all the other exciting research out there. Like, for example, I was at a conference earlier this week, the American Society of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. And I gave a talk there and it went great. It was lovely. But what I enjoyed the most was learning about everyone else's research and all the things going on under the sun under biochemistry. Um, and so I think what I want to do next, whatever that may be, is going to be being able to talk about lots of different science topics, uh, which is what's exciting to me. Then I'm happy that you're here talking about science. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you, you told us that you, you want to target that amyloid disassembly. Is there a potential risk of targeting that mechanism? That's a really good question. So um, because I'm working on such the basic side, um, right now I'm not seeing any sort of risk. Um, but I would say that almost definitely there could be some risk associated when we start um, scaling it up into in vivo, uh, mice, maybe clinical trials, etc. Um, so yes, but because I haven't been able to do that those experiments, I don't know what kind of risk there would be yet. Um, so in theory, how it would go is if whatever 
day of, let's just call it protein A, uh, which makes it very simple, makes my, my whole PhD work seem like a, uh, very small, but let's pretend it's just this protein A that's involved in disassembly. And um, if we have, say, a patient that comes in that's got, uh, and we're targeting with chemotherapy, radiothera radiotherapy, radiation therapy and chemotherapy to be able to get rid of the um, the actively divided cancer cells there's always a population of cells that are not actively dividing that end up you know waking up one day um, meta metastases and uh, growing rapidly somewhere else and so our idea would be to target those cancer cells the ones that can't be targeted by typical uh, cancer drugs um, and so the two options we could do there are either upregulating protein A to be able to disassemble those amyloid bodies, trigger, in theory, um, the reawakening of those cancer cells to grow and divide rapidly, which then could be targeted by classical chemotherapy radiation um, systems. Alternatively, we could take, again, protein A and inhibit protein A. So inhibit the ability of those amyloid bodies to disassemble, to wake, in, wake up those uh, cancer cells which then we just need to constantly keep inhibiting protein A to be able to keep those cancer cells from not awakening again and you know dividing in a new place. You want to activate those cells actually to be able to target them. Is that right? Exactly. So either we'd activate um, the cancer cells to start metastases to be able to, to grow rapidly again, and then we target them with all the other cancer drugs that are known out there. Or alternatively, we could just inhibit the disassembly of them and then keep the cancer cells dormant. Yeah, because activating, that seems a bit dangerous to me because you're like activating cells, but if you're not able to target them afterwards, you have a problem. Exactly. And that is definitely the potential, there could be a potential risk there. The therapy, if this, you know, one day, 10, 20 years from now, was approved as a therapy, I'd say the risk averse therapy would probably be using them to inhibit this reawakening process. These amyloid-like bodies are actually a result of cells that are being stressed and these result in diseases. So is avoiding cell stress one of the main ways actually to avoid getting cancer or reduce your risk of getting cancer or other diseases? I'm going to say no to that, at least with my experience, um, just because what we see with stress we're talking about in cancer, it's not uh, your, uh, you know, like say you've had a really long week at work. It's not that kind of stress that's going to cause them. It's more the, the stress from already having the cancer in your, in your body. Um, so say if you've got lung cancer, um, as the, the cells are dividing more and more, that's what's creating that tumor microenvironment. And that's what's creating the, the stress in the body because it's creating the low oxygen, the low pH, et cetera. Um, so I'd say no to that solely because it relies on, at least in the context of what we're studying, the amyloid bodies are in cancer are relying on the tumor microenvironment to stress out the cells. Like you said, it's not about stress, like being stressed at your job. It's stress of a cell. But you said something about that can be triggered by heat treatment. Yes. So the physio most physiological response is acidosis, um, which we, we can do in the lab. It just takes up to 72 hours sometimes to be able to get the cells into the acidotic state um, versus heat shock. You just take your cells, which uh, we normally go to about 37 degrees Celsius. Um, you stick them in an incubator at 42 or 43 degrees Celsius for a couple hours. And just in that amount of time, that's how quickly we see these amyloid bodies form. So it's very rapid. So are people then, for example, if there's a heat wave, do 
cells get stressed from people walking around in heat waves? That's a, a great and also funny question. I, I don't know how the best to answer that. Um, because in theory, they say, oh, no, 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 it's going to be really high temperature. But I don't know, because we also see um, other groups of things like the heat shock response. Going back to those papers I was told, telling you about where they did a study where they just put some people in a sauna for 20 minutes every day. Um, they saw the heat shock response of uh, human cells start working faster because they were in a hot environment. Um, I haven't looked if they've done more studies after that, but it is a really interesting area of research that um, may maybe is still open to, to needing to be explored. When we're talking about this um, stress and these heat factors and stuff like that, what, what environmental factors can induce this kind of stress in a normal, healthy human? So uh, to induce amyloid bodies? Yes. I think going back to it, it'd be the main one would be you wouldn't be healthy. You'd, you'd be the one with cancer at this point. Um, at, at least as far as I'm, as far as our research has gone, um, we focus mainly on the because we're a cancer biology lab, so we're looking at um, cells that are cancer cells. Um, maybe down the line, though, some again because this is a relatively new field, um, so maybe someone else, uh, postdoc graduate student, will take that research up because that is a really interesting question. So there, there's not like really a lifestyle factor that you have to take into account. Again, not that not that we've studied at all, but um, because we're talking about stress, uh, like you said, the, the door is open for a lot of different things. We just study primarily two stressors of heat shock and acidosis. Amyloid-like bodies are also related to aging. Can you give us some insights on that? Um, typically, when we're thinking of aging in amyloids, I believe we're thinking of we see more amyloid plaques, like in pathological amyloids, form yeah, in older patients, essentially. The reason people are tying them with aging is you've got the regulation of uh, protein folding mechanisms to make sure that we aren't forming plaques. Um, simply are just less efficient as we age. Um, there's less regulation of them. So it allows more opportunity for these plaques to form. Potentially the same could be said true for amyloid bodies because the disassembly mechanisms I'm looking at, um, maybe they're less efficient as you age. Um, but again, I, I just, this is all completely hypothetical um, because we're working with cells you know, on, a, on a plate. So we've not been able to test necessarily the aging effects of it all. But that's, yeah, I, I've never thought of that, but it's a really interesting connection. We're not going to pin you on that answer. It's fine. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so proteins have to fold and they have to form like a more dense structure. But when they form plaques, it's like something went bad during the folding and they start forming layers. Is that right? It depends. So typically the, the cell has tons of different mechanisms to be able to fold proteins properly, to fold them in an optimal way so that the, the right pockets are able to bind with the right other things out there. Um, and when those don't happen, you've got uh, misfolded protein that normally, again, the cell has ways to be able to mark those proteins for degradation. Um, and what they've seen in aging is sometimes those mechanisms just don't start to work as well, either the actual folding of the proteins or the degradation of the proteins um, that are misfolded, uh, which can cause the proteins to go about in a native state or in some cases, like we know with, um, with plaques, they start to form those amyloid uh, beta sheet, cross beta sheet structures is what they're called. They're kind of like layers on layers of proteins. When we talk about the treatment that you're hoping that will be accomplished someday, so the amyloid bodies will be able to disassemble, but how will that be administered? Will it be like 
a shot? Will it be a pill or is it too early to have any idea on that? Another great question. This, I mean, we're probably talking here like 10 to 20 years down the line. Um, I mean, in, a, in an ideal world, I would absolutely love to see this become a treatment. Um, there's probably, I mean, like you said, there's definitely risks to keep into mind. Um, I, I know there's certain ways. So if we were talking about the, the most risk averse um, pathway would be preventing the disassembly of amyloid bodies, so keeping the um, cancer cells dormant. So in which case we probably be working with some sort of inhibitor, which unfortunately for the mechanism I'm working with at least, we haven't found there's an inhibitor on the market to be able to um, inhibit the, that mechanism. But maybe the, what we need to do is create some sort of drug that could inhibit that mechanism and then administer that um, to patients. And so if you have to go forward in, in your field, I know you said you will leave academia, but if you have like a vision on how people should proceed, what would you suggest for them to research in this field? Um, well, selfishly for my project, I'd really like to see this be replicated in, in vivo studies to see if this would actually be a treatment that could be used in cancer patients. Everything we've talked about now, well, I believe it to be true, is all hypothetical at the end of the day, you know, because I, I work with cells in a, cells in a dish. Um, so ideally, uh, be able to replicate that and see the actual promise of um, the pathway that we've uncovered. Um, and then I think also another huge pathway is um, exploring this in relation to those pathological amyloids I, I was talking about. Because um, primarily I've been working with Alzheimer's disease, so beta amyloid, um, but there's so many different pathological amyloids out there. Um, and whether or not this same mechanism that I've been working with in cells works with all of them, and or if not, why not? Um, because there might be other pathways out there too, and then what are those different pathways that they're working with? I think there's a lot of different questions to be asked out there just with the different ways to be able to disassemble amyloids. So actually building on your work and doing it in vivo and looking on how to how the disassembly of amyloids works. Exactly, yeah. And, and translating it more into pathological amyloids. So you actually are leaving academia because you don't want to be in the lab all day anymore. And yeah, you want to learn more about uh, about science in general and what other people are doing. Um, what is your future or how do you see your future for yourself? So... Um, I love research. I've always loved research. I think that's going to be the hardest thing of leaving academia is the not being able to just go to the bench and get to try every experiment I want to try under the sun. Um, but I think what I've realized is, one, realistically, the amount of jobs out there to become your own professor are extremely low. Um, I think it's a fantastic anyone who's going that route. Um, but I just I, I don't know if I'm cut out for the doing 10 years of a postdoc uh, for the chance to be, you know, one of 900 applicants for a professor position. Uh, so that's that's one one very big reason. Um, another reason is, as much as I love going into the, the nitpicky of my research, like I was saying before, I also love learning about all the other types of research. And that's part of the reason I love what I'm doing now, too, because um, as you've noticed, we're my research isn't just in one specific, you know, protein. It's working at the intersection of both, you know, cancer and amyloidogenic diseases, which is really exciting because there's never ending amount of different literature to read up on, um, which is what I really like. Um, but if if I continue down that road of, say, becoming a postdoc and uh, going on the, the professor track, I'd one probably need to narrow in a lot into a very specific field. 
when I want to do the opposite and expand into a lot of different fields. Um, and um, while I love science writing, I think it would be extremely stressful to um, be writing for for bringing home the money for the lab. Like if you don't write well enough in theory, you're just not going to be able to have money for your lab. And that's a little um, a little daunting for me as well. So those things together, I've decided to explore explore the world of other job options. And there's a lot out there, which I don't think any of us realize. Like me coming to grad school, I thought there was two tracks. You either go into academia or you go and work for you know, industry lab options, um, both of which are great. And I know, you know, people are doing both. And I'm very happy with. Um, but I'm actually trying to find a way to combine my interest in science with I have another interest in law, like the legal side of everything. Um, actually, back in undergrad, um, I was a science major, but I also majored in legal studies. Um, and I was considering going, instead of graduate school, going to law school. Um, and I just didn't realize there was a space in the world, I guess, for me to combine both of those interests together. Um, but I have seen that there's ways in both the science policy and also like uh, patent law are two uh, potential options there. So science policy would be doing policy, but for the government. So how do we regulate how the either the money allocation for science or just how it's taught? And that's a a passion project for me is, um, I, I'm sure, I don't, I don't know exactly how the EU works with this as much because I'm much more familiar with the American education system. Um, but my experience with the American education system has been um, science has kind of taken a backseat a little bit in how in K through 12 education, like obviously they're taught the basic science classes, but it's taught in a very formulaic and honestly a little boring of a way. Like in high school, I didn't even like science that much because how I was taught it was, you read a textbook and then you take some multiple choice exams and it's testing you on you know, how well you can do your math um, or learn different equations. And it wasn't until my senior year of high school when I was given the opportunity to volunteer in a cancer biology lab at the University of Minnesota. And it was a very, uh, very minimal. It was simply just shadowing what graduate students did, um, learning about the research process, making reagents. But that really opened my eyes up to wow, I, I thought doing all these science classes in high school that everything was known, you know, it's, it's out of a textbook. And then going into a research lab, you're like, there's so much out there that we still don't know. Um, and you can just ask all these crazy questions and, and see what works because we have the tools in the research lab to be able to uncover it. And I think that there's a big gap missing between what's taught versus what science actually is. And um, I'd, I'd like to be able to bridge that gap somehow. So that's actually part of the reason I, I started all my science communication stuff on the side is because um, I want to show more people that science isn't this big scary thing that a lot of us think it is. Um, and part of the reason that I think science policy is so interested, interesting. But then on the other science law aspect, something I'm very interested in is patent law. So this would be taking scientific discoveries and making patents out of them. And why I think this is so interesting is because going back to my interest in looking at a bunch of different science topics at once, um, you, you'd get to do that. You'd get to look at all the pat all the different scientific topics and these different patents, and uh, be able to see uh, to be able to see the research before it's getting patented, which is really exciting. Um, so something in the science and law field to answer your question, um, and yeah, I, I'm really excited about the idea of being able to combine those two interests back together. I think we can really hear your passion when you're talking about law <laughs> and science and combining those. 
Is that what you always wanted to do when you were a kid, like law and science? Because I don't hear a lot of people talking with much passion about law. Yeah. So, no, actually, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an architect, uh, which really throws people for a loop. I, I still really think that building design is absolutely, like, ridiculously cool. Um, but that idea went out the window in, I want to say, early high school, because I don't have much of an artistic talent at all. I, I can't draw for the life of me. Um, and also, I'm not a huge fan of math. So I decided that can be like a hobby, something I, I'm interested in seeing cool buildings um, and seeing how they're designed. Um, and in high school, that it was, I was kind of between, I like science when I did that internship I was telling you about. I was like, oh, this could be a really interesting path. But um, other than that, I wasn't too sure. After I, I'd had to kick out that architect idea, I didn't know where I was going to land. And then undergrad, when I was taking all those legal studies classes, again, I thought it was super interesting, but I also thought science was super cool. And I didn't see at this time a way to be able to combine those. Um, I think why I'm so excited now is because I came to graduate school and saw that I was able to combine uh, my interest in learning about science research, but done in a legal way to be able to concretely change how things are done. So I think more scientists need to be thinking about not necessarily science and law intersection, but Broadly, what can you do to bring your science to the, the bigger picture? Because a lot of scientists, we stay in our you know, industry and academia, which is fantastic. We need scientists there. Um, but I, what we're seeing now is there's kind of like that disconnect between scientists and non-scientists. Um, like there's a bubble almost with the scientist community and we, ju we just stay there. And I think more of us just need to make an active effort to be able to connect with the community. Um, be that in your uh, social media way or in your job role uh, or, or just being willing to go out in the world and talk about it, really. Um, and there's a lot of jobs out there that I think would really benefit from having scientists there um, that uh, there's a huge need for. I'm going back to, I think, government roles. There's not a big demand for it yet, um, but I, I see scientists that are in government positions and I'm, they are doing the work that needs to be done. They're the ones advocating for um, you know, actually having better science education in schools, for example. Um, or again, with science law, if you have non-scientists trying to write patents, it can get a little challenging when you're talking about a specific protein interaction. Um, and yeah, so I think that's where my interest comes comes all together is the, the law side is that you can actually make concrete change in the world around you and taking that scientist perspective, which is uh, quite unique um, into that field. Um, you can make some really cool change, I think. That's also one of the reasons why I started this podcast, because I love learning new things in science and talking to other scientists. And actually that communication, like you said, that there is a real gap between this bubble of scientists and, and the rest of the population. And it's just so nice to talk to scientists and to learn what they're doing and what is happening. And when you talk about that gap, so actually between the world of science and how science is being taught and stuff like that what do you think are the major problems or how would you maybe solve those problems that's a fantastic question i don't have a great answer for this yet just because um i'm still trying to learn learn about about the problem more um people i've talked to about it say a few different things one it's just the lack of funding um and we're seeing that especially in america at the moment just not enough resources or even the resources that are there oftentimes are, are getting cut um, and a huge problem is the teachers that are there. We just don't have enough great teachers being wanting to teach science and math. Um, uh, they exist, of course, but 
they aren't getting paid enough. And again, this might be a very America specific problem, but um, like something I'd love to do, I, I've thought about this is I think it'd be so amazing to be a science teacher. But then I look at the salary and I'm like, I can't come after doing all the grad school, or, you know, not getting paid well to go and get that kind of salary. It's just, especially when you can go, you know, to academia, industry, anywhere else, and you get paid so much more. Um, so I think funding is a huge, huge problem. Um, and then I think it's also just the, the lack of understanding, which comes from, again, scientists being in their own little bubble. And we just, we start talking in such high complex terminology. And some of it's for sure, like we're talking about complex things, um, but there's also ways to be able to talk about that uh, that aren't as complex. And I think um, scientists forget about that. And then we get you know so worked up in our own little circle that we forget how to be able to talk about it, except with the you know three other people that understand that tiny disease we're, we're talking about. Um, and so I think another big gap is just getting scientists uh, willing to talk about their research in a more general way. Like hopefully what we're doing today and what your podcast is doing, where people can tune in and just be able to to learn about new scientific research going on without it being like, oh, I need to read a scientific paper that came out in nature. Um, because honestly, like when I started out in science, I hated reading science journals. I still find it a little daunting. Um, it's a huge skill that you have to learn as a scientist. Um, and it's a lot to expect non-scientists to just like want to go pick up, pick up an academic journal. And we shouldn't be expecting them to do that necessarily, but instead we should have opportunities like podcasts, like, um, other science journal outlets that are able to talk about science in both uh, educational way, but in a way that is more understandable without talking about, you know, 26 different mechanisms, all with their acronyms. <laughs> Those science journals are also so specific, even if you, as a scientist, if you go a little outside your field, it can be really hard to follow sometimes. So yeah. is that one of the things that you actually recommend that maybe scientists learn how to communicate their own research in a more accessible way? Oh, a hundred percent. One of the coolest opportunities I did during grad school was competing in our three minute thesis competition. It's not just for scientific researchers, it's all graduate students. Um, you learn how to talk about your whole thesis research in three minutes. So you have to be very big picture, very broad, make analogies. Um, and it's such a fantastic exercise to be able to learn how to talk about your research in a way that everyone can understand. So I think um, promoting more scientists, being able to take those opportunities, even hopping on podcasts, creating their own podcasts, um, being willing to go to schools to talk about their research, um, uh, after school programs, um, making an Instagram account to talk about science. I think any way that you're willing to put yourself out there, and it, it can be scary for sure, because you're not always going to say everything right. Like I was saying earlier, I, I, I didn't know everything you were asking me about. But I think you've got to be okay with that um, to be able to move ahead and, and talk about things in a, in a big picture um, so more people can understand what's going on in science. Because that, again, it goes back to this funding issue is we don't have enough people understanding why, why fund science. Why do we really care about it? Um, and if people are asking that why question to begin with, they're not going to be as inclined to fund it. Um, so I think it's up to us as scientists to be able to, uh, to, be able to explain to people Science is great. Like science is all around us and we all should be passionate about learning about science. It's not you know, dry, dense textbooks. It's really cool. Um, and I think we just need to get everyone back into that love of science again. I agree. And I think it's also maybe part of an insecurity because like when it's, as you're a scientist, when you work in your bubble, you feel really secure. 
but when you go into the open you really don't you don't want to look like an idiot and when people like i study plants and when people ask me something i'm sure they can ask me things about plants that i really don't know and that's daunting and you feel like they're gonna say he's a scientist he doesn't know what those plants are doing he's an idiot or something simple like i'm i'm belgian my english is far from perfect when i talk in english i can feel like an idiot and i make mistakes and i make mistakes in science and in language and you have to be okay with that and you have to learn to deal with those mistakes and accept that scientists are people too and that we're just That's learning such a great point i think that again came back like covid 19 pandemic people thought that science is like the be all end all which it's the accumulation of knowledge for sure but i think that's something you have to remember is science is, is just science at the end of the day it's um we can do an experiment and get one answer but then you could do 20 other experiments and get different answers it's the accumulation of human knowledge but we're all human uh, scientists aren't we're experts in this one tiny niche but then you know you're asking me about proteins that maybe i should have known about and i didn't even this pro protex if i remember right protex I was like, yeah. I, i've never even heard of this um so i think scientists in general we also just need to be more comfortable with being okay with not knowing everything too <laughs> yeah. getting called out maybe sometimes before we end uh, i would like to ask you do you have a take-home message for our listeners I think the big take-home message really is that science is for everyone. You don't need to be a professional scientist and go to graduate school to uh, fall in love with academic research um, or just what's going on in science. So I think however you want to stay involved in science, um, you should do it. Uh, science is for everyone and you should be getting everyone involved. This was the 16th episode of Apple Finch Pudding. I want to thank Chloe Kirk for the information and let's meet again for the next episodes of Apple Finch Pudding. Mm -hmm.